Be Fabulous with Vibs and Vicky, the ThinkShift podcast for professionals who aspire to be fabulous leaders, those who not only succeed, but also purposefully seek to reinvent the world. Welcome to the Be Fabulous podcast, episode 11, the ThinkShift Why. In this episode, we bring together uh, taking our lead from the Vips Y and the Vicky Y, we bring it together into why ThinkShift? Why does it exist? Uh, why do we believe fabulous leaders are so important? And what are we doing at an individual level and an organizational level that is different and hopefully will result in better leaders to reinvent the world as we go forward? <music> Welcome to our Be Fabulous podcast. In this series, we are at episode three after two episodes focusing in on the Vicky Y and the Vips Y. So in this episode, we are going to cover ThinkShift and what is the ThinkShift Y. So as you've heard from us individually, we are now going to pull this all together and talk about why does ThinkShift exist and what do we hope to achieve at the individual and the organizational level. So with VIPS, VIPS, so that is the backdrop. What's this all about? What is the ThinkShift Y all about? That sounded so formal when we introduced it that way, wasn't it? It's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was saying to myself, wow, we sound, re- we sound, really, we sound really, really well put together. Um, no, I, I think... Um, we punch above our weight, my friend. We do punch above our weight. One might argue we don't punch high enough above our weight. Um, that too. Um, but uh, no, I, I, look, at its core, I think probably the best place to start is is um, uh, probably just worthwhile just decomposing kind of our mission, I guess, you know? And because I think it's, it's pretty loaded in there and then we can kind of decompose down at the individual level and organizational level. But at its core, you know, we're in the business. We exist to craft fabulous people and fabulous leaders to reinvent the world. And that doesn't happen if, people just kind of plod along doing whatever it is that they're doing. That's, that, takes, that takes a certain type of character, certain type of craft and skill that needs to be honed over many years. It takes the ability to adapt, pivot, build teams. You know, in our case, typically against the business backdrop, but not only, not exclusively against the business backdrop. And what we're really trying to do is, in my opinion, and I'll be curious to hear how you, how you interpret this or how you expound on this. Um, I think we have a very optimistic and positive view on the future of what the world could be, um, whether it's our organizations and, and maybe a focus a little bit more across profit, people and planet, as opposed to maybe just profit, as we see in so many companies that we work with. But also fundamentally that, you know, over time, over decades, over generations, things do generally at some level, at some level tend to move towards some level of progress, even if we have uh, lapses along the way. And so all I want to do really from a think shift wide point of view is try to accelerate some of that fabulous. So some of, so we, we, we create a better generation of leader 
in the future so we don't have this kind of skill shortage, capacity shortage of good leadership talent for some of the challenges that we experience both in our organizations, in our communities, in our countries, and globally. That's probably, you know, that's probably where I would start. Um, curious for your reactions to that. Hmm. For me, what I see is a lot of organizations make it up, right? They start with a great idea and they take the first few steps and they hire some, some people and they, they, try and, they try and make it in whatever way they can without any deliberate thought as to the, the construct of what they're building and the impact later on them and the world. And what that tends to mean is over time, the type of people they hire may or may not work out. You know, they may be okay in the early days, further down the line, they may not, may not be the right individuals. The behaviors, the ways of operating might not be appropriate for what they're trying to achieve. And so when I think about the ThinkShiftY is we have, through all our experiences and all the research that's out there, we found a way to be able to architect and create the foundations for organizations that help it truly be in the place where it is considering profit, people, and planet, and not over skiing on any one, and then take it relative to their size. And if you do that well from the beginning, it's much less painful later on, because once you end up one, two, three, four years down the line with a certain way of behaving, that becomes the culture. And it's much harder then to unwind all of that. And often, you know, 10, 15, 20 years, 1 million, 5 million, 10 million, 50 million, 100 million, you now have an institution and a way of being that is very, very difficult to, to shift. And so fundamentally, if we can get back to, let's thoughtfully do it while we're scrambling to make money, that would be very powerful. Yeah. Yeah, it's quite multifaceted, right? When you think about mm -hmm. it that way, you know. As as uh, you know, I was making some show notes before um, b before this one, and uh, you know, I I, I think I I br drill it down to, you know, fundamentally. I think uh, if you, if you look at if you look at the Think Shift Y through the lens of what are we reacting against, you know, then I, I would say you know we're reacting against the idea that we see so many executives and so few leaders. Mm -hmm. you know, when you look around you, there's just not that many people that you'd follow, but yet everyone in his uncle seems to have a VP or SVP or GVP title. And what does that mean anymore? Um, so that, to me, I think we're a bit of a reaction to that. There's, a, there's almost a little bit of um, a desire to refocus back on what constitutes people and causes that we want to follow as opposed to the tactics that we have to employ in order to operate effectively or efficiently. I think it's a slightly different. One's maybe more of a management uh, orientation and one is a little bit more of a leadership orientation. And even though they overlap massively, um, I, I, I think if you're, looking, if you're looking to do something positive in the world or shift a culture or shift a mindset or, or create any kind of lasting change, uh, you, you kind of need to skew a little bit more towards leadership and a little bit less towards management. You need both, but that's, that's probably the skew. Um, so that's, that's yeah. on that point. When we think about too many executives and too few leaders, how many do you think are self-aware uh, of, of the difference between those things? Um, and what do you think that's all about? I, 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 here's what I think. I, I think this is one of those things that instinctively most people know it when they see it. Hmm. Yeah. But I think 
that most people would like to think they are leaders <laughs> rather than executives. And that's a lot of because of the way we talk about leaders. That's correct. Everybody's a leader in some shape or form. They're leading something. But we have a very particular definition of needing followership to be a true leader. Yeah, but it's not just us. I mean, you've got to remember that, that you know, to some extent, business has perverted the term leader. I mean, society, really, in, in, in the last sort of 20, 30 years has really, I don't know, I, I, it, it's, it's sort of fudged those two things into one. You know, if you're a senior person in, my, in, your, in our company, then you must be a leader. And, and I, th- I think we kind of got away from the core of what constitutes, what constitutes a way of being that generates followership and authenticity versus what makes you a leader because you've got some skills in doing something and you can do those things really, really well. So we'll just call you a leader because we want to pay you 300 grand a year. Yeah. And I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to belittle it, but I, I think... I think what's happened is, and then, then what we've done is we've like, you know, we, what we always do is we, we then end up stratifying leaders. So you don't mean a thought leader. You don't mean this type of leader. You don't mean that type of leader. You mean an expert. You mean, a, so what happens is, you know, that kind of phrase, you know, the, the phrase leader can be contorted quite easily to fit most situations. And, and I think what happens then is, is that gets lost. We tend to, promote and over-promote people who we think have skills that we think, you know, fall within some pattern or some framework or some role, role that we want them to play. And it, it's kind of easier to let people off the hook when it comes to the, the more self-reflective, character-intrinsic, um, quite frankly, applying the right value judgments when data is ambiguous um, against the value system, that's when you have to make leadership calls. Um, when you know you're, you're, you, you can't just rely on the mechanics and the data. It's really, it's really make, taking a stand at some level um, for something that you believe in, and then engendering that in, or, or sort of inculcating that inside your organization. And I think um, what I see really, you know, to, to now that you make me, you ask me that question, is I think you see leadership quite a lot with the people that have really made it because they realize what it is. Like after the first time they've done it, it's almost like you reflect back and with hindsight, you get to see what was leadership and what was management. But I think when you're on that journey, it's really easy to see the things that people are doing, attribute them to good management skills. And so you don't, you, you don't really make that distinction until after you've kind of made it, if you like. And so, you know, you create this generation or not generation, this layer of people that maybe maybe sit just below the true leaders inside an organization where they're no longer really playing to advance a cause or a mission or a purpose or a sense of being, but they're kind of, they're kind of just trying not to get found out and maintain their income, maintain their lifestyle, maintain their jobs, because, well, I guess why wouldn't you? They, they recognize the privileged position they're in. Mm. So the imposter syndrome creeps in again. Yeah. Well, some it's not even imposter. Some they just know it. It's like, well, I just, I'll just ride it out for as long as I can until I get found out. And this is where the ego is a little tricky character. Yeah, that's right. Because the ego doesn't often allow us to acknowledge to others that we aren't truly playing the role we are in place to do. Yeah. I mean, we know, we know one leader, Vips, who, or one executive who, you know, will categorically say, you know, I'm never wrong. We're going to do this. You may not understand yeah. it, but I'm just never wrong. So don't come back and tell me. Now you can imagine what kind of environment that creates. 
um, yeah. when, when, when that's the posture. But it also reinforces his or her belief that they're never wrong. That's right. And that, that, that kind of personality is often very good at just forgetting whenever they were wrong. <laughs> it's, it's a, it's a, they, they, won't, they won't even have the memory recall for that. Um, yeah. So they only have the memory recall for anything that did work. And so in their heads, you know, in their heads, their statistics show that, you know, 99% of the times I'm right, 1% I'm wrong, but I only make 10 decisions a year. So I'm always right. <laughs> <laughs> I also, I also um, had this wonderful discussion once with a very seasoned CEO. And he made this statement, which I thought was very wise, is I try not to do anything significant in my first year because what I've learned is through all my experiences, the first year of making changes in an organization when you come in from the outside, you think you know, but you don't really know. You pattern matching based on what you did before, but it's the nuances of the culture which makes change so hard. And it's really year two when you get it right. Now you start again. You understand the landmines, you understand the layers, um, the unsaid beliefs and principles and philosophies of what is or isn't going to make that uh, change work. And I thought that was a very uh, profound way to see the world. And if only a lot of leaders could see that, because too many will go into organizations, they come in to make a change, something happens. And within 90 days, you know, there's a reorg, there's something that goes on. But to everybody else around the edges, it doesn't feel good at all. And yeah. so the consequences, what I, what I really wanted to touch on is too many executives, too few leaders. What is the consequence from your perspective? And then I'll share mine, Vips, on, on organizations in the world. The consequence on the organizations? Yeah. Oh, I, I think what it means is um, uh, the consequences are enormous. So firstly, I think what then happens is uh, basically organizations just do what they've always done. And they, so, you know, how one then thinks of change, how one thinks of innovation, how one thinks of new products, new services is all really incremental tweaks. And, but, but yet, but yet, you know, you, you'll, you'll massively wrap it up in marketing and language and so forth to try to convince yourself that you're being revolutionary, innovative, changing to the market, adapting, so forth and so forth and so forth. So, but what you're, what you're really doing is relatively small incremental changes. And I think what that does over time is it leaves you susceptible to new entrants in the marketplace. And, you know, someone smaller, more nimble, more agile, you know, usually with a younger demographic as well, comes and takes your cheese. And, you know, we, I guess, you know, and, you know, in, in today's world, we call that disruptors, right? We, we fetishize the disruptor. I think, I think that's what it does when you have too few execs and too few leaders, particularly in lar larger or established organizations. Yeah. And then internally in the organization, what we see is the, this disruption to the individuals. So they don't feel like they have the, the space to grow. They don't feel like they're being stretched. Sure. They don't feel valued. They don't feel... Um, necessarily that their voice is always heard. Yeah. So they, yeah, well, I think it systemically creates mediocrity, Vicky. <laughs> or learned, or and learned helplessness. Sure. Right? Sure. We do the, do the bare minimum. And it's all the things that executives hate. They, they don't want mediocrity or people doing the bare minimum. And they don't realize the consequence of how they show up and the resulting effect. But it's a truism there, right? Everyone wants everyone else to change. They want to change themselves. <laughs> Right? I was like, <laughs> they're the problem, not me. <laughs> yeah. 
But you're right. You're right. I, you know, as you were speaking, you know, your, your little test there about that, that, that executive you're talking to and working with, I, I use that as a self-efficacy test because like, here's how it shows up. So anyone who's got high levels of self-efficacy knows that they're going to be valuable, therefore doesn't mind fighting for and holding the course of not really doing anything in that first six, nine, 10, 12 months, recognizing that I need to spend more time listening and absorbing so that I know which levers to pull in subsequent years. Otherwise, I've got a high probability that I do the wrong things. And building relationships, yeah. Yeah. Now, here's how it shows up though in organizations that have low self-efficacy or leaders, or sorry, people who think they're leaders but are probably executives with low self-efficacy. What's my 30-day plan? What's my 60-day plan? I need to get some quick wins. What's my 100-day plan? If I don't do these things, they're going to think I'm not adding any value. You heard that one? Oh, yeah. Right? That, to me, is the test right there. Yeah? If you go into an organization and, and either the organization expects you to make radical changes in 30, 60, 90 days, or you believe that you're going to get found out unless you do those things in the 30, 60, 90 days, one is an indicator of low individual self-efficacy and one is of a, well, in our language, it would be a non-fabulous culture, yeah? So, Vips, what do you, what do, you do in that situation? You know, if you come into an organization and that's the case, what do you do in that? Well, as a fabulous leader yeah. or as an executive? As a fabulous leader. Well, you probably wouldn't join. You'd probably go somewhere else. But say you've joined and then you find, you know. You, you discover you're, it while you're there. you know what it's like. You know, you, you're dating, you're having a grand old time. You know, there's the champagne, you're being wooed, you're wooing. All right, so you're sleeping together, but you haven't got married that's yet. That's it. Now, now yeah. you get in the door and you start lifting up the rocks and you're seeing. It's a bit ugly down there. It's way ugly down there. And no one ever told you that. And you knew it was going to be kind of ugly, but you never knew how ugly. Yeah. I, I think what I would do in that scenario, what I coach people to do in that scenario is, okay, so you've, you're, you're experiencing now that the environment is different from the one that you thought you were joining. So I would, I would help them put together a plan of how are they going to learn the nuances of that environment as quickly as possible. So... I, I would then turn, you know, so if you have to have a 90-day or 180-day plan, I would make that more about understanding different departments, understanding how they work, where, where, where do responsibility domains fall from a departmental point of view. Um, when I think of my peer group, how do I build those relationships? How do I build my, you know, it's almost like LinkedIn. How do I build my tentacles inside an organization but see those as milestones rather than see those as the things I have to do above and beyond my job, so to speak. And then I also think from a competency point of view, um, this is where, you know, we have a, I mean, I guess, you know, many readers won't, uh, list, listeners won't know, but, you know, we do a lot on killer questions, asking great questions. I think this is when that, that period of three, six months, you know, asking the great questions that, that, um, don't force you into a place where you're going to have to make decisions that could come back and bite you unnecessarily. So to me, a big tons, you know, do a few things, do them really, really well and be extreme, double down on getting to know that environment um, and not feel too frustrated if you feel like you're not making as much progress as you would like quickly. Yeah, and I, I like the killer questions and, and I would add to that, 
through what you're learning through those killer questions and building those relationships, breadcrumbing and drip feeding that knowledge across the organization in different ways so that people start to say, wow, you know, that new leader is adding incredible value by giving me these insights that I hadn't yet seen because I hadn't yet seen my lens of my world through the lens of another department. So that way you're buying yourself time. You know, you're not only spending time building relationships, but you're building, you're building that, that capital with the other people where they feel like you're adding significant value through how you are joining the dots for them that they may not have seen before. Yeah. And you know what that is at its core? We, we, we actually have to do an episode on this specifically, but those people will recognize and, and associate with high levels of value, personal power. Mm. Yeah. Those executives who disproportionately associate themselves with content power, they're the ones who are going to feel like they're not doing enough. Yeah. Because, because they, they, their association of value is tied to, you know, if, if you're a CIO, your va- if your value if in your, your if you're a CIO and your and your your association of value is is managing technical teams or technical departments, okay, and that's your you, you think that's your thing, you know, technology is your thing, it's content power centric, then you are likely to think that all those things I described earlier are not really what your job is, because you associate your job being more with your content power. And so that's, to me, that's also a really good indicator of when someone is really just an executive as opposed to a great leader. So Vips, let me ask you this, you know, of all the people you're working with, and, and I'll do the same, how many are truly seeing their world through the lens of other departments as opposed to looking inward and protecting the boundaries of their castle and playing the political game? Because if you think about it, every department, you, you brought up the example of technology, but if you think about marketing or product or sure. supply chain or R&D or finance or people, they're all there to support each other and to deliver the greater whole of whatever the vision is and the mission of the organization. So anyone working on their own is not helpful. But in order to look through the lens of, if we go back to the example of technology, you know, I'm only here to serve those that are delivering content or product to our customers. It's, it's a means to an end. Mm. But how many really see it that way as opposed to, I have a significant budget, I have probably one of the largest headcounts in the depart- in the organization mm. because of the, you know, the, 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 the role technology plays these days. But am I really looking at it as I'm here to serve as opposed to here's my kingdom, here's my, my walls, everything's so complicated and I look inwards and I defend? So in raw numbers, you're asking me? No, just generally. Can you think of... I, I think that's a, I think that's a journey of endurance and suffering, <laughs> right? Like I, I think you have to you have to you have to go through that kind of, you know, I'm looking after my little my little fiefdom, and and realize it doesn't work for you. Like there's a limit to how well that can work for you before it starts it, it starts basically getting in the way of where the organization is fundamentally going, and you start you start being an inhibitor to where the organization is going rather than kind of a, someone who is actively serving the mission, if you like. And that's when ego kicks in again, because many won't acknowledge that and go, oops, that's not working for me. Let me change it up. Yeah, but they, they, they do when they lose their jobs a couple of times. <laughs> right? And I, I think that's the key. I, I, I think... That's painful, this is, That's a lot to go through. That's really painful. It, it is. And 
I, I, I mean, this is why I'm, I, you know me, I'm such a fan of tours of duty for your fabulous people. Cause I think if you don't do that, what actually happens is the people, if you just, if you just allow that functional career path to just continue, you, you are going to end up with the Peter principle playing out where you, you will rise to a level of incompetence. So tours of duty, explain that for, for our listeners. Yeah. So tours of duty is basically the idea that, you know, when you've, when you've, um, you know, A, we just need to get much better at identifying fabulous talent. And by that, I just mean people who have the potential to be great leaders above and beyond being good managers and executives, okay? And that's not, that's not the same as, you know, this person's doing a really good job right now, therefore they're in my top right-hand corner of my nine box from an HR point of view. So these are, these are people that... Um, they don't fit the nine box. They, they don't fit the nine. They're, they're, yeah, they're probably in some other nine box in another dimension, if you like. And... And with these people, you know, they, they, they're not just saying they want to grow and they want to learn, um, but they're actually, they're actually going to make decisions on that basis. They're going to, they're going to find a way to take matters in their, into their own hand by leaving, or they're comfortable with the idea that if I need to acquire a breadth of skills, then maybe that's not the shortest path to wealth. Going horizontally for a while. Yeah. I might have to, yeah, I might have to go horizontal to then go up, or I may have to you know, do a tour of duty in a different department to truly understand what it feels like to be in there so that when I'm a COO or a CFO or a CEO or a, or a CPO, I'll be able to relate and understand that better. But to do that is often, often means a short-term foregoing of a particular maybe upward promotion, if you like, from within your domain. And I think tours of duty are a mechanism. They're a systemic, they're a structural thing that I think organization, we used to do these a lot you know, 30, 40 years ago, and they kind of we stopped doing them because we started optimizing for, for kind of really efficiency and a lot of slack in the machine got taken away with high levels of efficiency. But now what happens is it's very difficult to keep your best talent, um, particularly your best leadership talent. So tours of duty are really a way to make sure that your best people are being optimized for growth and learning over the long term rather than, you know, short-term results of their job this quarter or this six months but but you have to want that you have to you have to create a culture and environment that that promotes and advocates that well sure because if you think about those that value content power it feels awfully risky when you bring somebody into your area to lead it that has no content power sure so you bring a you know cio cto into head up marketing you know it's the marketing folk look up and think Who's this person? Yeah, no but maybe person. that person, maybe that person who could be a CIO in a small or medium-sized organization takes a sideward step and they're a director in marketing rather than a the C, C member, yeah. right? So, uh, you know, to me, this comes back to self-awareness and self-efficacy again. It's a question of what are you conditioning and training for? Are you conditioning and training for the path of least resistance, which is going to be your functional career path? Or... Are you conditioning and toning to be a leader of some kind of organization or cause in the future? In which case, you know, your, your optimization algorithms look different. They don't look like the path of least resistance for the promotion. Mm. Yeah. But this is, where, this is where I think HR departments and talent departments can often go wrong because we, get, we kind of get fixated on the idea of doing the same thing for everyone. And that, that kind of feels like fairness. Yeah, there's a, there's a fairness aspect to that. And I think when we try to create fairness in systems, it tends to look like do the same thing for everyone. Yeah. And, and the problem is everyone's a little bit different because of 
their aspirations, their backgrounds, their skills, their, their horsepower, um, you know, whatever criteria you want to throw at it. And so I think we need to move to a world where we, we are comfortable with the idea that we're doing, we're, we're doing different things for different people because that's what's going to optimize their level of growth and therefore the value, value return to the business rather than we can't do it that way because if we do it that way for this person, then we have to do it that way for everyone which is generally, I think, the default mentality that our, you know, like our, particularly our talent structures and systems tend to fall into. It's making me think of a story I heard at a TEDx event uh, in Seattle from a prosecutor who uh, had two people come and see him. One was a tech worker from Seattle uh, and one was an undocumented worker. And he had to prosecute both of them for uh, drinking and driving. And he, he gave the, the, the description of if he gives them both a, you know, a slap on the wrist, um, a $500 fine and a night in jail, for the tech worker who's earning a lot of money, that literally feels like a slap on the wrist, even that, that penalty. But for the undocumented worker, that could be life-changing. You know, he could end up going back to, or she go back to wherever they came from. So it might be... Um, on the surface, it might feel equal, but is it equitable? And I thought that was a very good uh, distinction between those concepts of, yeah. of how do you, in this instance, have the punishment feel the right way to the individual in, 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 in tours of duty or things inside organizations. It's, it's how do you take care of people so that those fabulous few are truly being taken care of in a, in a meaningful way, just as meaningfully as those that are more um, your steady eddies, um, and, and that you're okay with that. And it's okay. I, I, and I think that's, the, I, I think that's, that's um, we, we, we struggle with that. I mean, you, know, you talked about it through the lens. You know, that's something, your, your, your example, I just want to do a bit of a segue here because, or a sidebar, I should say, because I, I went through the same thing when I was here in, um, and I wasn't a citizen at that point. I was, uh, I was on, a, on a, I was on a visa at the time. Um, I, I forgot to, uh, I, I forgot to update my tags on my car. And the reason why was because the car was paid for by the company. And so I, I didn't even realize that the tag had run out. Um, cause, cause it wasn't coming to me. It was going to the organization and I got stopped. And, uh, Carla was, I think about eight months pregnant at the time. Um, and, uh, I mean, we basically, um, you know, they took the car and we were, you know, we ended, we ended up having to get a taxi back and what have you, but we had to go to court or I had to go to court. And, and it was really interesting because, I mean, it wouldn't have mattered if we would have gone back to England, but, but you're, you're exactly right. The, the consequence of, it wasn't, a, it wasn't just a $50 fine or $100 fine or $200 fine. It was you will show up in court. And if you're convicted of this, your visa will be revoked. Mm. Yeah. And that, that's, that's, that's a lot of pressure on forgetting to update your tags. Yeah. That you wouldn't have, for example, well, I don't have now as a US citizen. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, that is a very, so yeah, very good I mean, example of that. <laughs> they, they, yeah, but if I take you to a different place, you know, you also, um, I think, you know, we talk about, we, we, you know, we're, we, especially right now, we're trying to wrap our heads around equity and equality and th th those words are becoming words that, you know, are, are not just there for philosophers and, and academics anymore. They found their way into, into, uh, into you know, corporate language as well, uh, particularly against the backdrop of what we're going through in the world right now. And, and um, you know, the phrase that we used to hear about a lot in the UK when 
when we were studying, I don't know if this is, I just don't know if I'm not exposed to it so much in the US, was we used to talk a lot more about equality of opportunity as opposed to like raw equality, which means, so equality was more like just treat everyone the same, mm-hmm. done, yeah? And equality of opportunity was really recognizing that that for, for any given opportunity, some people are going to have some privilege associated with that and some are going to have less privilege associated with that. And this could be getting into college, you know, going to certain colleges. Um, you know, there was a preference, I don't know if it still exists, but certainly when I was growing up, you know, if you had a pair, if you had a father or a mother that went to that college, you would automatically have preference when it came to acceptance because you're an alumni, mm-hmm. you have a parental alumni. But if you think about it, that was discriminating against someone else who could have had that, who might have been a better candidate. So th- there was this idea that, you know, so in that scenario, if you want equality of opportunity against a more diverse pool, then some of that privilege has to be taken away and it manifests itself in those policies. And, and, and but the idea is basically that, you know, equal for one person, you know, equality of opportunity for one person is different from equality of opportunity from someone else because they, they, their context is either less or more privileged relative to that topic yeah yeah it's a it's a fascinating one and and i know as we go into this topic given its prevalence in society today importantly it's gonna be interesting to see what that means for things like white privilege but that takes us off topic so let's get us back on topic but i think where it brings to is my you know fundamentally we also exist because we we know that the world needs better leaders to deal with huge challenges of the world and you know, when we started this five years ago, five, six years ago, the kinds of things I was thinking about more were, you know, sustainability, climate change, just, just rising populations across the world, um, sort of changing economic landscape across, across countries. I mean, I think it was around the time that you know, I started becoming a little bit concerned that, you know, I, I don't know if we can be the, 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 you know, the largest detonation forever, <laughs> you know, as the US, you know. Um, so... You know, and that's before you layer on, um, you know, social justice, um, what I would describe as, you know, maybe a more progressive agenda. All of, all of these are hard, complex, mm-hmm. you know, systemic, cultural. Sometimes they cross political lines. Sometimes they cross religious lines. Sometimes they cross, you know, national lines. Um, and this was also against the backdrop of globalization, which obviously has slightly fallen out of favor in recent years. Um, but... But either we, however you look at it, these challenges, there's, there's no way that we can do those just by worrying about our own little piddly departments yeah. inside our organizations. I mean, these are, yeah. um, and quite frankly, I don't think young, the younger generation want that. They want to be part of that narrative. They want to be part of that solution. They kind of recognize that we've screwed up the world, you know, my, my age and above, if you like, they kind of screwed up the world that they're about to inherit. And it's like, you know, there's a reason why they're angry. But that doesn't mean you throw the baby out with the bathwater. I mean, there's hundreds of years of wisdom that we've accumulated. And, you know, we are going to need, you know, really strong and more voluminous quality leadership over the next 50, 60 years just because of the scale of the challenges that we're going to have as 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 a species. So we're going to end up with fabulous leaders who create organizations that are purposeful and care about people, profit and planet. I think it's inevitable, but the problem with those things is it's, um, you know, for that to happen, um, you know, that kind of culture shift doesn't happen as a result of a project or a program. That's well, it's why so many transformations fail. It's failed. sustained. Yeah, that's right. 87% of them, which is, by the way, a phenomenal sum of money. 
that gets spent on business transformations. All good intention. Um, all good intention, but um, but you know that you know that that's you know you've also taken us to another reason why I think Shift Y exists. You know we we realize that you know you and I have been doing this for twenty years plus, and they just don't work unless the mindsets and the behaviors of our leaders and key influencers change to reflect where we're going as opposed to where we've been. Well, there's that that, that need for that common common view of where are we going uh, and then a common language and framework for how do we see the world when we think about sure. people, profit and planet and how to not look inward and just take care of myself but take care of my team. Sure. Um, and that takes a significant rewiring. You know, the, the question... Well, and courage. And courage. Because I mean, the question, you know, I love to ask, ask a lot of my clients is if, you know, we look ahead five years we're all going to pretty much be exactly where we are to plus or minus 5%. And there's something in our vision shifts in terms of where we want to go. And we want to do that hockey stick. You know, we map out five years ahead, five years behind. Unless you fundamentally shift how you see things, you pretty much can guarantee you're going to be where you're going to be plus or minus 5%. And so if you think about that from an organizational perspective, if you're not all creating a common language and way of being around all of this, you're going to continue with uh, the dysfunction that we see today and, and all these executives and so few leaders. And, and we won't have organizations that are as purposeful and caring about people, profit and planet as we need. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I bring it back, back to just straight up cognitive science. I mean, just, just <laughs> our brains just want to be in autopilot most of the time. That's what they feel safe. So, so, yeah. yeah. So if that, if that's what, you know, if that's the wiring that's required for people to feel safe and comfortable, and I've yet to I've yet yet to meet someone who doesn't want to work less, earn more money, and do what they're doing today, right? It, it's there is a certain amount of um, why can't things just be easier? And you know, if you think about what easier actually means from a cognitive point of view, it means <laughs> it, it means doing more of my defaults. And, and it's why so many people have enjoyed at least this part of the COVID, which is, That's is right. the non-commuting, com, not, not, not commuting. I mean, there have been some other That's downsides, right. but the amount of upside of not commuting has been huge for folks. Absolutely. I mean, ima- imagine if you've been given four hours of your of your each day back. And add in all the distractions, um, especially for a lot of introverts that work in organizations. From an energy perspective, yeah. it's huge. It, it, yeah, so, so guess what? It's going to, in some respects, for, the, for those people, it's going to feel way more comfortable. They won't want to let it go. But does that mean that they are now going to maximize their potential and grow and become fabulous leaders of the future? No, maybe it's bad from that point of view because you're not going to be in more complex um, influencing type of conversations because you're too busy getting stuff done over Slack in short posts. Um, maybe you just avoid directional and vision-centric stuff because there's no right or wrong answer for that kind of stuff. It's, it's value judgment choice and, and um, inspiration in many cases. That those things are notoriously hard to build without direct human contact. So, you know, I, it's, uh, you know I, what we're doing really as we're having this podcast, Vicky, is we're, we're almost dissecting the Think Shift Y against the, the levels of thinking that we've been doing in previous episodes. Yeah. Um, you know, it's the way I look at it, you know, all of these things, everything that we feel good about, like that, that, you know, that, you know, that quintessential software developer who's introverted, who loves being at home right now and uh, without the commute and everything else, you know, there is a consequence to that if you go higher up the thinking levels. Oh, absolutely. 
you know? Yeah. And, um, but if it conforms more to our own internal wiring and beliefs, then like, uh, sorry, what gives us the least amount of friction cognitively, then it feels easier. It feels easier. Your brain's getting positive reinforcement. You will not change that. In fact, you might leave your current job. That might be the best place for you to grow just because you don't really want that growth. To seek safety. You, you, want, you, want, you, want, you want what you have now because yeah. it's easy. Yeah. I've had that example with uh, one of my, my uh, chef clients who's opening a new restaurant this week and I'm so proud of her because this is a tough time to open a restaurant. But one of her team was offered the opportunity to lead that, that uh, particular new restaurant. But it would require a huge step up, a different demographic, different market segment, a whole other level of polish required. And after having a few coaching sessions and digging into what it really means, very proud of her, she made the decision that she doesn't want it. You know, rather than yeah. trying to do something that would challenge her. And for me, it's, it's always striking because I'm like, Does, doesn't everybody want to grow? Doesn't everybody want to take on that challenge and reach their potential? Because that's how I am. But at the same time, I'm really proud of people when they say, you know what, that's just that's too much like hard work for me. I, I'm happy for growth, but not that level of growth. It has to be more in my comfort zone. So, oops. Well, well, also, well, I know you want to switch, but I think that's really fascinating what you just said, because I think it talks to some, some, like if you think about what we've done from a think shift point of view, we have absolutely not tried to grow fast. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, as an organization. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we're not, we, we could have been three, four times bigger than we are today. But if you're optimizing for doing meaningful work, and you know, you doing the sorts of work you want to do, me doing the sorts of work I want to do, so that we are working towards a mission that sometimes isn't the fastest path yeah. to organizational growth. Yeah, that's a good insight. So we make those choices, you know, and and but it's I think it's hard to do that when you get large, when you have you know, particularly if you've got you know, your VC backed or private equity backed or um, you know, or, or, or you know, listed company where you've got you know, very entrenched behaviors on what a board is supposed to do, what they care about. It's really about financial, you know, financial duty of care and obligation, risk management. These are not, these are not bad things because they, you know, they're employing so many more people. They are, but, but it's, you know, shifting those things is really, really difficult because it's not like the world isn't competitive. It's quite hard. So, you know, what we're talking about is making a hard, a hard problem for business leaders even harder. And, and you know, many aren't up for that. Mm. You know, so it, it it leads me to our final question uh, as we as we look to end this this particular episode. So, this is it really possible from your perspective when you think about your clients? Now, I'll, I'll give my perspective as well to be happy, successful, purposeful with limited tension at the same time. Is that really even possible? Do you have examples of that? Where I do. I do. I have, I have many examples of that. And what, what, I, what I've now found is um, it tends to be the people who get close to that tend to be on that journey. You know, if we take our four journeys, the journey to superstar performer, the journey to awesome manager, the journey to top-notch executive, and the journey to fabulous leadership, they, they, they tend to be in that journey to fabulous leadership area, like the so ones that I can think they've of. They've got through their circles of suck. They've got through their circles of suck or they've decided as superstar performers that they simply don't want to do anything else. They're happy being superstar performers. So they've, they've, they've decided how they want to be in the world and they've come to terms with that. Correct. So, so for example, if you take um, a you know, superstar performer, it's like, I'm not going to chase the promotion. I'm not going to chase the big team. I'm not going to chase the big budgets. But I am going to, 
I am going to hone my skills to become better and better and better at my craft, whatever it is. Yeah, and I've got a great example of that one where I had someone in that case and they said, you know, I'm going to spend my little extra time rather than chasing promotion. I'm working with my son on on robotics and building something in robotics because that's what I love. Yeah. But they're also making a conscious decision then that my economic value to the market will be a function of the value of the skills at a point in time. The reason why we like, quote unquote, climbing the ladder is because your your income levels and income growth are relatively predictable and safe. So if you if you kind of jump off that path and just focus on your on your craft, then you're you're more likely to have a variable income profile over the course of your professional life because the the value of your skills is going to to increase and decrease based on you know, on on, the, on its level of relevance and relative supply and demand in the marketplace, which is why you tend to see those people more in, you know, contract type roles. Yeah, that's a good self-selection perspective as well. So yeah, I, I do think you can. I, and the reason why I think it tends to happen is um, at, at a later stage um, or on that final journey, if you like, is I think, I think people have to realize like, you know, you know, when I remember when I was 22, right? And I was so happy to join Anderson. I was thinking about the money I'm going to be earning and what have you. I'm going to have my BMW. Life's going to be wonderful. I'll be so happy. And then within two weeks of buying my BMW, it's like I've got buyer's remorse. I'm going to do like a thousand miles a year because I live in central London. This is stupid. Yeah. But but if you tried to convince me beforehand that the BMW wouldn't have made me happy, I wouldn't have believed it. Yeah. Well, it's 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 often the case that, you know, you'll hear billionaires say that. Yeah. Uh, which is hard to believe. It's you're chasing all this success and you're climbing this ladder, but you realize the ladder's on the wrong wall. It's not the wall that actually makes you happy when you get to the top. How many times have we have heard that? The phrase I've been using recently, Vicky, and you, 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 you'll, have a, you'll have a repulsive reaction to this um, because, because, of, because you're the chief happiness officer, right? But, <laughs> but I, I've, started, I've started talking about engineering suffering. <laughs> I don't mean in a nasty way. I, I mean, like, like, in order to have someone accelerate their growth, they, there has to be, there has to be periods that build resilience and mm-hmm. and and don't go right, don't go well, aren't happy, are a bit sad. Um, yeah, because that's the time you grow the most. That's when you grow the most. Now you, you know you, you don't want them, you know you don't want them crashing and burning and yeah. and left in emotional distress that it it's going to take five measured. years for them to recover, right? It has to be tempered. But but I, I think I think. I think somewhere along the line, we've started saying that creating a supportive environment and one that cares is one that isn't creating the learning opportunities because somehow you're not caring if I'm having a hard time at the moment. And there's a real, to me, there's a real fine line there between, between you know, being supportive and helpful at the cost of not giving you the experiences you're going to need later on in your career to mentor, guide, but also to make the difficult decisions you have to make as you become more senior. Hmm. or in your life, right? Just say you have kids and you don't want to work that hard, but, but you know, you're, you're addicted to whatever job you've got. I mean, these are difficult decisions. And if you don't have the reps along the way for a little bit of suffering associated with some of those decisions earlier on, you are going to really, you're going to fall hard if you've never had them before and you're doing them at senior levels. Okay. So I think that takes us full circle, Vips, to our... I think shift why um, individually, organizationally, uh, you know, it's so important to have these leaders that will ultimately create the impact in the world um, that is purposeful and will care about people, profit and planet. 
Any final words, Bibbs? Only that, you know, it's, it sounds all doom and gloom when we talked about it that way. But, but if you think about it, it's, it's really just not that hard, okay? I mean, what we're, what we're really saying is, you know, identify and, identify and find the fabulous people first. Nurture them along the way because they will, they will, keep, your, they will keep your attrition levels low. But if you can keep, they, 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 they're going to give you value return anyway. Meet them where they need to be and, and look for systems and structures that, that cultivate your best talent rather than hold them back because you're trying to do the same thing for everyone and you don't want to be seen to be showing favoritism to the people that are generating most of the value for your organization. I, I think we need, we need to look at that a little bit more because, you know, I think otherwise we systemically create mediocrity where the best people, because the best people can move on easily. They, they're going to go and they're going to go and make their millions no matter what. So we should probably just, these things aren't that hard. I think, I think, they're just a little bit different relative to how we're grooved to thinking about them. And I think actually the current environment, uh, you know, COVID and, and, and social justice and uh, sort of civil unrest that we're going through is forcing a recalibration. Um, I hope we can use this to uh, recalibrate us to, I don't know, architecture 4.0, the right type of, you know, what is the fabulous organization 4.0 that does seek to balance those things. Yeah, I love it. All right, the Vicky challenge, Vips? Go for it. Make sure it's optimistic though. So not look for opportunities to suffer. So yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you, that was just my tough love moment. You're, you're, supposed, to, uh, you're supposed to make it all safe now. <laughs> all right, so for those of you that want to challenge yourself, you can look at moments of suffering to to figure out where you can grow but for everybody else uh the, the the challenge for for this episode is is to really think about the people in your organization and yourself and where are the opportunities for more of that honest conversation and reflection so spend 10 minutes um each morning for the next week and really look at the people in your organization and how many would you say are in that space of continual reinvention and growth? How many are in that mediocrity, you know, just really settling place? Uh, and, and how many are that they really shouldn't be there? And then once you've done that assessment, be really honest about where you fall in and whether in five years time, you pretty much want to be where you are today, plus or minus 5%, or if you want the hockey stick maneuver that's going to change the the trajectory of where you end up in the world. And if you do, give us a call. And with that, be fabulous. Have a great week. Have a great week, everyone. Bye-bye.